Hey friends, I'm Stuart Sutherland, co-founder of Heritage Missional Community. We are a growing network of microchurches centered around a coffee house and coffee roasting business in Shasta Lake, California. If you've ever thought there has to be more to this journey of following Jesus, then this is the right place for you. Thanks for joining me in a casual conversation about reclaiming authentic discipleship. Fill up your coffee cup, settle in, and here we go. Hey, welcome back to episode six, where I share an incredible part of the story. I think this is probably one of my favorite parts of the story. And what's so amazing about this time was, first of all, it's on the heels of getting the building. Getting the building was it was awesome. I think just the Lord's supernatural provision, people getting behind it financially, people hearing from the Lord. So it was kind of like, okay, I'm not on my own. Sarah and I aren't just hearing things, but we're really hearing from the Lord. And not only that, as we cast vision, other people are hearing from the Lord as well. And I think that just was a really exciting time for us. It, it felt very validating. It, it felt really powerful. And so here we have the keys to the building. We're looking around the building. We're, we're dreaming. We're thinking about all the amazing things that we, we could be doing. I'm already working on doing uh, architectural drawings for submission to the city so that we can get the work done. And all this stuff starts happening. And so now there's this long journey, 14 months of, of figuring out, okay, how do we transform this amazing building into a coffee house, into that third place. It's not home, it's not work, but it's that that place where we can really invite people into, into relationship, where we can learn names, where we can hear stories, where we can move at that pace of relationship and invite people into a discovery of who Jesus is. It just was, it was exciting. And yet, there was so much to do. It was overwhelming when I thought about, okay, you know, all of the, all the different processes we were going to have to go through from submitting plans to the city, getting a building permit, to um, demolition, to all of, the, all of the work, the utilities that we'd have to put in. We'd have to put in underground plumbing, under, you know, electrical. And um, this reminds me of kind of one of those crisis points that we got to pretty early in the process when we were going through plan checks. So this is where you, you know, I, I created the architectural mechanical drawings, plumbing, you know, lighting, all that stuff is figured out. It's on paper and it goes into the city. We give them money and that begins our permit process. And so then you have a city official uh, who knows the building code kind of scrape, you know, pour through the plans with a fine-tooth comb. Really try to make sure that we're following code, all that fun stuff. And it also has to go through the fire marshal to make sure that, of course, for, for life safety, that the building was going to be a safe place, that our exits are, are you know, up to code, that our, um, that our building in and of itself had the correct fire rating that, you know, if there was a fire, everything was safe. So you guys, you get in the picture here. There's a lot involved in the plan check process. And so in the middle of that, one of the questions that was brought up was, is there reinforcement? So the building itself was uh, built out of block. It's a block building. But they wanted to know something. They said, is there rebar, reinforcing rebar in that block? Now, it won't 
maybe you're maybe you're already ahead of the curve here and you're realizing, well, how the how the heck should we know? Like, I mean, can we see through, do we have x-ray vision to see through this concrete block to determine? And so they really wanted to have an answer to that question. Is there reinforcing rebar in that block? And so I, you know, I had some friends in who were engineers, so I contacted them and said, hey, is there any way that we can figure this out? And they said, oh yeah, we've got this special device that will read or kind of like an x-ray machine for your wall. And so they brought the equipment and here's the, here's, here's the background story to this. We don't have existing plans for the building. The building was built somewhere, you know, in 1937, 1938, 1939, somewhere around there. And I started to do some, some research. You know, I first went to the city of Shasta Lake, which is a pretty new city. And so um, the city incorporated after the building was built. And so I had to go to the county. So I'm scouring through, um, you know, the microfilm at the county. And I finally find this file. And it's the building. It's the right address. I mean, there's basically a napkin sketch of, of the outline of the building, which was at the time a courthouse. So you'd think, surely this would be something that I could find in, in the public records. Well, as it turns out, there was a note. There was, there was a note written on this basically outline of the building, and it said, looks like this is all we're going to get, meaning there are no plants. They just, there's the building outline, and then the building was built, and the county said, well, this looks like, this is, this looks like all there is. <laughs> First time I've ever seen something like that, but you know, this is kind of the Wild West when, when this whole area was being developed, especially because this is a boom town. It, it was being constructed for um, all of the workers who were coming to build Shasta Dam. And so that's, that's kind of how this, how this whole thing started was I don't even know how this building was built. I don't know. There are no plans. There's, there's no information whether or not there would be rebar in the wall. And so we're just praying, like more and more praying, like, Lord, they didn't have to put rebar in the wall. In fact, they probably didn't. If they wouldn't have to, if there was no plans on record and this thing was built really fast, chances are they didn't do it, you know, what we would call today the right way. They just would have done it, which, you know, done it in a manner that, who knows? It was a mystery. And so that's kind of leading up to this moment where we have the guy with this real special x-ray machine. And a few of us are there just kind of watching him. And he's got this red... Uh, wax crayon, giant wax crayon, and he's going to mark where rebar is if there's rebar. And I, I mean, you could feel the tension as he fires the machine up and he starts running it across the wall and we just keep praying because essentially here's, the, here's, the, here's what's at stake. If there's no rebar in the walls of the building, they're going to ask us to do what's called retrofitting, basically some seismic, some earthquake-resistant um, engineering to to keep the building from crumbling if there's an earthquake, because this is California. We have earthquakes. I mean, we're surrounded by volcanoes here in Shasta County, and so, well, I guess that kind of makes sense. But does it have to be for our building? You know, it's just like really, okay, we're gonna try this. So the engineer is just moving this device back and forth, and all of a sudden he goes, hmm. 
And you could hear a pin drop in the room as soon as he did that. And he takes the, the big giant red crayon out and he marks a line. And he goes, that looks like rebar. And we're like, oh, this is really exciting. But the other thing that, that has to take place is that rebar has to be at the right spacing. And there has to be enough rebar. It can't just be like, okay, you know, there's one piece in the whole building. But they needed to show that it was done in a way that would actually reinforce the wall. And so he's moving his device to the left and he just keeps kind of moving and he goes, hmm. And he gets his crayon out and he marks another one. We're like, oh my goodness, I think it's actually going to, we're going to, you know, have rebar in this building. And, and pretty soon he checks all of the, the vertical runs and then he starts checking the horizontal runs. And sure enough, I cannot believe it. Honestly, I cannot believe it. But sure enough, the rebar there is in place at the right intervals, and he's just like, I don't believe it either. The engineer couldn't believe it, that, that, that it's there. Everything that we needed was there. So this is one of those things where I'd say the supernatural was very much taking place. This was a building that absolutely did not need to be built with rebar. Probably most of the buildings in this town, if they are block, don't have rebar in them, but ours does. That's just miraculous. Whether it be the Lord chose to give that builder some, you know, insight, some supernatural <laughs> insight to go, you know what, I, sh I should put the rebar in this time. You know, I wasn't going to do it, but on this building, sure, why not? You know, I don't know why, but I'm just going to do it. Or maybe the Lord put the rebar in there. I don't know. But the rebar was in and we were moving. So that was really exciting. And I think just as as that happened, we got the building permit. It just felt like, yes, we've got some momentum. This is getting exciting. And we started doing some fundraisers. Some money started trickling in. And um, it was time to do demolition. And so I contact some contractor friends, and they bring some tools. We get a few guys, and it was time you know, to get going. So demolition takes place. This is the crazy thing. Day one of demolition is taking place. And we have a gal walk up off the street and she goes, hey, are you guys doing demolition? And we're like, yeah, that's what we're doing. She's like, you want help? <laughs> we're like, uh, sure. Yeah. She's like, I don't know. I've got nothing else to do. I have construction experience. I can, I can do some demo with you. And we're like, sure, that's great. So from the first day, the Lord's already kind of giving us an extra hand. And I think it was just so awesome. Help from off the street. And so... Um, Demolition goes really smoothly, and then we get to the point where we are going to sandblast the entire uh, interior of the space. It was the block wall. It was painted. We wanted the block exposed. It had big wood beams that were painted. We wanted the wood exposed again. And so um, I, I did some research on sandblasting, found out sand's not really good healthy for indoor sand, for indoor blasting media. And so you can actually use a crushed walnut shell. And so I'm like, well, that's, that's very specific. Where am I going to find crushed walnut shell? Well, as it turns out, this is a, yet again, the Lord, we had some friends in our community said, oh, my folks have a shelling company in, you know, just south, south of here a few hours. And they'd be willing to, to donate some crushed shell that they actually make it crushed for blasting media. They, they actually give you the product that you are looking for, and they're going to donate it. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And then it's like, okay, who do we have that we can, you know, where are we going to get the sandblasting equipment? I mean, this is major heavy-duty industrial stuff. And another friend who works 
in a pool business goes, oh, well, we sandblast pools all the time. All we have to do is dump the shell media, the walnut shell media into the, our equipment and it will work fine. And it was like, okay, let's do that. And um, we'd even have things where it was time to, to frame walls. And um, I remember one of the guys, his name was Kyle, uh, one of the architects I worked with, um, would he came early one morning before he went to work to help me frame some walls. I mean, just the generosity, the outpouring of help was, it just seemed relentless. It just seemed to keep coming. Um, and then it was time for heavy equipment. I mean, stuff that was cost us thousands of dollars. We had to put a grease interceptor in because we were, uh, even though we were just doing coffee at the time, uh, the county really wanted us to put this grease interceptor in. And what is a grease interceptor? It's a big concrete tank about the size of a Toyota Prius, and you have to dig a hole in the ground and bury it. And then you have to hook up all of your plumbing to that. And so we were already cutting into the concrete floor to redo all of the plumbing. But while we were doing that, we had to dig this really big hole for this really big concrete tank. And we had a friend who's just like, yeah, I'm retired. I still have all of my heavy equipment. I still like to use my heavy equipment. You pay for the fuel, and I'd love to do this for you. <laughs> I mean, this stuff just never stopped. And, and then, I know, I know, it's like, and then this, and then this. Yes, it just, it seemed endless, like an endless stream of really cool things just kept happening. We finally get to this point where it's time for an electrician. Now, I've got some pretty decent construction skills. I mean, I have my hand in everything that's going on on this project. And it comes time for installing the electrical. And part of the design of the space was um, exposed electrical conduit, which, um, it, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but basically electrical conduit isn't like bending it and making it look nice. That's not something everyone can do. That is, that's, it's an art form. It, it really takes skill, lots of math, but ultimately it just takes somebody who can really um, be meticulous. And I needed, I wanted a, I wanted a licensed electrician anyway to do all the work because that's, none of us have the experience or the, or the credentials to do the electrical. And this is what I'm talking about. It, 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 it was the day before we needed the electrician. We had nobody. We kept calling people. We had somebody who thought they could do it, but then they couldn't do it, so they pulled out, and so we were still without an electrician. And tomorrow was the day that we would be 100% ready for an electrician. So I think about, well, you know, we don't have anybody in mind. Get up the next morning. It's like, okay, think of a few things that I could do. So I go into the building I think I was there alone that day because there just wasn't a lot to do. And so I'm just kind of doing some, you know, small potato stuff. And a guy walks in. I don't know who he is. I know his name is Joe. He introduces himself as Joe. And as it turns out, Joe is an electrician. And Joe says, I know what's going on here. Again, I have no idea how he knows this at this point. It's just, okay, cool, Joe. So you know what we're doing. He's like, and I want to help. I am starting my own, you know, I'm an electrician by trade, but I'm starting my own business, and I think this would be a great place to start. So would you, you know, and he, he just wanted to, to, to offer his services to boost his portfolio, and his price was basically materials plus a little bit, which is incredible, 
And I'm like, okay. And here's, here's the cool part. Bending metal conduit is like his specialty. If you come to our coffee house, if you ever come visit, if you're already familiar, look at the conduit. It is meticulous. It is beautiful. It is, it's, it's art. And it was because Joe, the electrician, appeared with, I, I honestly cannot tell you how, but he appeared and he got the electrical done. And I've never seen electrical work done so beautifully. And so, you know, it's just one thing after another, after another, after another. And these long days of working construction, I mean, I remember just wearing old beat up shoes and torn clothes that were, you know, had paint or grease or blood on them for, for months. And that's all I wore. And, and it was like, my appetite went from like sitting in an office, working in architecture to doing construction every day. My appetite went, you know, out, it just was crazy. And so we would, you know, whoever was helping that day, we'd take them to lunch. We'd eat at the local pizza factory We'd talk about life, and it was just a really fun rhythm of life. It just felt like hard work, total dependence on the Lord to provide. We'd do a fundraiser. We'd get a little bit more money, do a little bit more work, and then we'd have to do another fundraiser, get a little bit more work, or we would finish work one day where we had no more materials. We still had a bunch to do. And then somebody would show up or money would appear in, in our bank account and it was time to get moving again. It just happened. It, it was without ceasing. The provision of the Lord just continued day after day. Um, and then it was time to like recruit some help. As things started to get completed, um, it was time to just clean the space. I mean, finish work is the slowest part of the process. Painting, staining, finishing... Um, and we had some Simpson University students come and help. They would do a day of service, and some of these students became really good friends and then became part of our, our original team. In fact, one of these students was our next-door neighbor, and he was just uh, an incredible guy who would champion what we were doing. And what was so cool was he was already promoting what was going on because he was just a natural promoter, gatherer kind of guy. And so people had already heard about what we were doing before we were even open because this guy was just going around telling everybody about it. And we would just have people that we started to run with who just had had really incredible buy-in, who, who by faith, I mean, they saw this building that was being turned into a coffee shop and this vision about this ministry moving at the pace of relationship, the, the third place being a vehicle for us to get into um, relationship with people, to, to champion the community, but also to invite people into discovering who Jesus is. And they just, they would get it and they would, they would own it and they would run with us. And it was just so awesome and incredible. And even before our construction was completed, that momentum was already starting to take place. And I just, I would think to myself, like, how is this possible? How does this, you know, how does this continue? It just felt like, Lord, your, your provision and your generosity is just incredible. And so things started to slow down and construction started to come to a close and we finally started to think about 
what the Lord was doing. You know, it was like as we were in the rhythm of fundraising and construction and people walking in the door, it was like you just got to business, you know, it just got work done. But then when we slowed down and started thinking about, you know, recounting what the Lord had done, it just blew our minds. We just couldn't believe that the Lord would be that good, that the Lord would give us, not just give us vision, but he would give us provision, that he wouldn't just call us to do something and then make it up to us to do all of it on our own, but he gave us what we needed when we needed it. And I think that was such an important lesson for us to learn stepping from the marketplace and then stepping into this, um, this ministry, this new expression of church, I think it just changed my paradigm in so many ways because I used to work to earn money, to, to make my own way, to you know pay the bills. That was, that was my own abilities. That was my own work. That's how I saw it. But I think in this 14 months... I saw more provision of the Lord that was not dependent on my effort, but it was really just his grace and mercy being poured out. It was like, Stu, I've called you to this. I've called you and Sarah, your family, I've called you guys to this, and I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to give you all the things. I'm going to give you the help. I'm going to give you the funds. I'm going to give you the materials. And because we said yes, the Lord took care of everything else. And heck, yeah, it was a ton of work. It wasn't like, okay, the Lord, you know, did all the work for us. He did all the, you know, the, the, the actual muscle, the, the strategy, the risk. I mean, we were, we were doing that, but it was in partnership with the Lord. And that's what made space for the supernatural. That's what made space for God to provide. When we would just walk to the point, we'd walk to the very ragged end to where there was nothing left to do. And the Lord would then give us more. And I love that about the Lord. I love that. And I, and I read the book of, of Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls, and it just reminds me of that. It reminds me that as he stepped out in faith, as he approached the king in the very beginning where he was moved by the, by the devastation of, of the temple, of the walls being t- torn down and the gates being burned, as he was moved, as he repented to the Lord, as his heart was was oriented towards God, then he stepped out in faith and he had a plan. And I I love that. He's he's a hero to me. And it, it inspired me in this time, in this 14 months. And there's actually a passage in Nehemiah that inspired me, not just inspired me, it triggered something in me. It, I, I realized something was very... Uh, a true. The Lord did something for me that he did for Nehemiah. And it's in Nehemiah 9.21. Nehemiah is recounting the Lord's provision to the Israelites while they're wandering in the desert. And he says, for 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. And after I read this passage, you know, Sarah and I were kind of talking about it. Nothing wore out. Like I told you my clothes were ragged and shoes and stuff like that, but I didn't have to buy new shoes. Uh, Tools, nothing broke. Nobody got majorly, I mean, scratches. We literally just got scratches. Nobody got hit in the head. Nobody smashed their fingers. None of that happened. It was just, it was supernatural. It was radical how God just 
continued to sustain us for 14 months. He would sustain us by providing what we needed when we needed it. He sustained us by things not wearing out. He sustained us by there being, I mean, my house, we had a house, nothing broke. And you might be wondering, well, okay, how did you know nothing broke? Well, here's exactly why. When the 14 months were over, when the, when the construction was complete, our dishwasher broke. My shoes, the soles of my shoes literally just fell apart. Stuff really started falling apart and we started feeling it. We started feeling like, oh my gosh, things are getting expensive. We're having to replace a lot of stuff right now. And we're in the middle of starting, you know, we're raising support and transitioning out of, um, we transitioned out of the marketplace, transitioned out of architecture and into ministry full time, being on a partial support and, and feeling like, oh my gosh, we're having to buy all of this stuff now. I don't even know if we can afford it. But then it also helped us remember, oh, but none of this wore out for 14 months of hard work and construction. And I love that about the Lord. It, it encouraged us. It was almost like um, somebody had a, a kind of this prophetic vision of when we completed the construction, it was really um, right on. And it was, you just finished a sprint. You just finished racing the sprint. And now you stand at the beginning of a marathon. And it was so true. And while that would seem very discouraging, I think it would feel overwhelming when we may have heard that at a different time. I'd say in that moment where we realized the incredible provision of the Lord, where he sustained us, he gave us what we needed, that didn't feel discouraging or terrifying at all. In fact, it was encouraging. It was as though, okay, Lord, this was this is a full-on sprint in the beginning, and we've made it. This 14 months was like hard and fast, and now we stand at the line where you're going to continue to sustain us in the long journey ahead of us. So that's the supernatural. That was the every day something incredible would take place, something that in my own abilities I couldn't make happen, and it was dependent on the Lord to make it happen. It would just be normal. And while that season stood out and was unique, it also has given us faith um, just as leaders, as, as, as followers of Jesus, to continue to depend on the Lord, to press on the Lord, and to not worry, to, to, to not live in fear of if God's called me to something big and scary, um, I'm, I'm, conf- I'm more confident. I'm not going to say I've got this figured out. Trust me, there's plenty of moments where I still get scared. But with that history and remembering that history, man, it's good to know that the Lord shows up when you need him. So that's all I got for this episode. In the next episode, you get to hear more. You get to hear more of how the Lord continued to show up. Thanks for joining in today, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a comment if you enjoyed this episode. You can check out our ministry at heritagecoffeehouse.org. And remember, we all play a vital role in God's plan for redemption. So what's the Father saying to you, and what are you going to do about it?